I'm thrilled you're here. We're doing one of my favorite things, and we're talking about a really weird passage in the Bible. We've been working our way through a bit of the Bible called the Book of Acts. It's the story of the very first church, and it has been so helpful for our church in this messy season. Now, the single big idea of the Book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit, the very presence of Jesus Christ, resides in you guiding you and empowering you, teaching you and emboldening you. And so Acts is the story of the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through the very first church. And then we come to one of the weirdest passages in all of the Bible. And like a lot of the Bible's weird passages, right underneath the surface is a hidden gem. Our passage today, no matter how strange it might seem at first, is ultimately about this mysterious and life-changing idea. If you want them to, if you let him, if you partner with him, God can change your heart. So this is a talk about your heart, your core motivations and desires and aspirations and hurts and hopes. And so I'm thrilled you're here, not just to hear about this interesting and strange passage in the Bible, but that you're going to hear about something truly mysterious and quite possibly life-changing. And at the end of this talk, I'm gonna ask you to do something really brave. Let's jump in. The Holy Spirit is leading and guiding and empowering the very first church. And at the end of Acts chapter four, we get a look at how profound of a difference that all makes in the way that people live. So Acts chapter four. Now the whole group of those that believed in Jesus were of one heart and soul and no one claimed private ownership of any possession, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This phrase, one heart and soul, is really powerful. It's hard for us to imagine selling our property and possessions and sharing it communally, but this is what the early church did. This is how they behaved, and they behaved that way because God had changed their heart. God gave them the desire to love in this grand way, and if you think that is absurd, know this. God could change your heart like that too if you ask him, and that's not even the weird part. Then it says this. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died, and a great fear seized all who heard it. The young men came and they wrapped up his body and they carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to it, to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the Holy Spirit of the Lord to the test? 
Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Maybe you're like me. When I first read this passage, I am initially repulsed by its strangeness in two ways. Now, the first has to do with my sympathy for Ananias and Sapphira. Whatever they are guilty of, I am certain I'm guilty of the same thing. Who among us hasn't done some good with impure motives? Who among us hasn't been duplicitous? And who among us doesn't desire to look better than they actually are to other people? But the second reason for my initial repulsion is the proposal that sometimes God is violent or maybe that the consequences of my wrongdoing might be death. And together these make for a downright weird and off-putting passage where God seems to have a snap judgment about a relatable wrongdoing and zaps this poor couple and they fall down dead. But as I stated earlier, this all points to something life-changing. Now, the first thing to understand about this passage is the immediate surrounding context. This passage here falls between two stories where Jesus's followers filled with the Holy Spirit are performing great acts of power and healing in Jesus's name. And the big idea of the book of Acts, like I said earlier, is that the cosmic power for good that is the presence of Jesus Christ lives in Christians through the Holy Spirit. So whatever Jesus does, his followers do. Just as Jesus healed the world, the disciples heal the world. And just as Jesus told life-altering truths, the, the disciples speak the truth as well. One of the things about Jesus was that he seemed to be able to know what was in people's hearts, what they truly wanted. So in John chapter two, Jesus performs a miracle and the crowd is wowed by his power and wants to crown Jesus king of that nation right there. And then to lead the nation of Israel in a military campaign against other nations. But Jesus knew what was in their hearts and he would not let them have power over him. So likewise, Peter here seems to know exactly what is in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts. And then he speaks a powerful truth to them, so powerful, in fact, that they die. Have you ever had someone tell you something true about yourself before you were ready to admit it yet? Before I was the campus pastor in San Mateo, I worked in student ministry for about 10 years and I loved it. And towards the end of that 10 years, I was sad that I had kind of started to age out of working with high schoolers and middle schoolers. I'd lost just a little bit of my street cred at that point. Now, over at the Mountain View campus where I was leading the student ministry, we would have a little bit of a pre-service dance party each week as student arrive, students arrive to the student ministry. And during one of these dance parties, a student on our student leadership team who I loved and know well turned to me and said, Matt, you dance like a dad. And I knew right there, right then, that my career in student ministry was drawing to a close. Something in me died that day. And what's worse than being told your dance moves are no longer cool is when the person telling you a truth you aren't ready for happens to be your spouse. And every spouse has had that happen to them before. And that's why we're running something called the marriage course right now. We have over 150 couples learning to communicate better in their marriage right now. Katie and I are doing it and we're loving it. And the next time it rolls around, you should absolutely do the marriage course. 
But sometimes we're told a truth in a way that we're not ready for and it kills us. And Peter tells Ananias and Sapphira a truth so deep and so penetrating that they die. Now, a little bit about the violence of God in the Bible. Few things make us squirm like the idea that God could be violent and the way that it can be depicted in the Bible. Now, the Bible isn't shy about the fact that in rare circumstances and for the right reasons, God is pretty violent. But it's even more insistent that God is good and loving and slow to anger. And sometimes out in the world, the God of the Bible is caricatured as being overly violent, especially about things that seem unimportant or even petty to us. How could a good God be loving if he is inexplicably violent sometimes? Now we'll take a look at an example of that in a moment. But before that, I wanna take a closer look at the way God himself feels about his own violence. Now, the book of Isaiah is a conversation between God and the nation of Israel. And this conversation happens at a pivotal moment in the plot of the Bible. After a thousand years, God is fed up with the Israelite leaders who have ignored God's instructions. A thousand years, pretty patient, right? And in Isaiah chapter one, the conversation opens up this way. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children, I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. Why do you seek further beatings? Why do you continue to rebel? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God, pretty patient, all things considered, tells Israel the stakes. You can return to my instruction or I will abandon you to the neighboring enemy nations. And this threat, follow my instructions or face invasion can sound pretty harsh to our modern ears. Let's look at those instructions again from Isaiah chapter one. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Pretty similar to our passage in Acts. Generous care for those in need. And in Isaiah, the nation of Israel does not reason together with God. They don't end up caring for those in need and they're ultimately invaded by the neighboring superpower Babylon. But right in the middle of this conversation in Isaiah, there is a remarkable little passage that will change the way that you think about God's heavy handed actions. Isaiah 28, 21 says this, the Lord will come as he did against the Philistines at Mount Perizim and against the Amorites at Gibeon. Those are nations he destroyed. To do his work, his work is strange to him and perform his task, his alien task. You see, the work of punishment is alien to God. It feels unfamiliar to him. This means that the violence of God in the Bible is something that even God is kind of uncomfortable with. It is unnatural to him. It is against his inclinations to be joyful and slow to anger. He simply deemed it necessary. 
Fleming Rutledge, in her profound but way too long book called The Crucifixion of Jesus Christ, argues that while God is occasionally wrathful, his wrath is always productive. It produces transformation. So in the plot of Isaiah, God sends his people into exile in Babylon to be prisoners. And then they return from Babylon having transformed. They treasure God's instructions in a whole new way. And this means that God's violence in the Bible is something that God is uncomfortable with, but is an option of last resort to teach a necessary lesson. And this too is an uncomfortable truth that God might be heavy handed with us if he deems it necessary in his wisdom in order to teach us or to shape us. But the reality is this, God is way more concerned with our transformation than our comfort. And I want to be clear about this. This has no analogy in human life. It doesn't justify human to human violence for what we might deem the necessary or right reasons. God is really clear about that too. He says, vengeance is mine. And so God is heavy handed on us. And that doesn't mean that we could likewise be heavy handed towards one another. But I have to confess there's something in this line of reason, reasoning that is relatable to me on some level. My son, Frankie, turns three years old tomorrow. Happy birthday, buddy. Daddy's on TV. And Frankie loves baseball. He loves playing baseball and talking about baseball and even watching baseball. This week, we've watched every World Series game. Here's a picture of his second birthday. We gave him a baseball helmet. And he loved it. And for a three-year-old, he's got a great arm. That kid can huck it. He can throw a baseball all the way across our backyard, and it's really fun when he's throwing a baseball or a wiffle ball, but it is less fun when he's throwing the television remote. Something about the TV remote seems especially throwable to my son, and a lot of times the problem is he's throwing it at someone, and when it hits the ground, the casing breaks, and the batteries fly all over, and the guts come out, and our TV remote is mostly taped now. And so I tried reasoning together with him. Son, the TV remote is really important to daddy. Or it hurts your sister when you hit her with the remote. Or worst of all, if you break the remote, we can't watch baseball. But eventually, after all that reasoning together, I just have to put him in timeout. And I don't like doing it. But I cannot think of another way to get through to him. And I am certain that this is how God feels about me sometimes. You are hurting yourself and others, and I have no other option but to be a little heavy-handed with you. And every parent has been in that tough position of saying, I don't like this, but it is for your own good. And so as uncomfortable as it might be to us, from this perspective, God's wrathful actions are really actions of loving discipline. It's as the Scottish pastor George MacDonald said, God is always for you. Even when he's against you, he is for you. But the Bible is a very subtle book. Now, there are some passages where it's very clear that God is punishing someone. Take 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked at the ark of the Lord and the people mourned because of the heavy blow that the Lord had dealt them. So the Bible isn't shy when God is acting in this way, but in our passage, really subtly, but very crucially in our passage, it does not say explicitly that God killed Ananias and Sapphira. And in a book that really isn't shy about God striking people down, to phrase it another way becomes really, really important. 
It suggests that there is way more going on here than God striking down a dubious real estate deal. It suggests that this passage should serve as a warning to you and I. There can be something in your heart that can kill you. Bitterness can kill a friendship. Greed can kill generosity. A critical spirit can kill joy. Judgment can kill a marriage. What is in your heart can kill you. Recently, I read a book called Seculosity by David Zoll. Big recommend if you want to be challenged, challenged about what is in your heart. In it, he argues that as religious participation decreases in our world, religious devotion has remained the same. It's just that the world used to point that religious devotion towards God, but now we point our religious devotion towards our to-do list. He argues that we worship having it all and making it look easy. And David Zoll argues that by this definition, San Francisco is the most religious place in America. Recently, this image was going around on the internet and the caption says this, me trying to excel in my career, maintain a social life, drink enough water, exercise, text everyone back, stay sane, survive, and be happy. We want to appear to have it all and to have it all together. And that is exactly what Ananias and Sapphira wanted. Not to be good, but to appear good to themselves and to others. Now, as a pandemic parent, I must confess, a few times over the last several months, I have totally lost my mind. Parenting in the pandemic isn't all baseball helmet photos. And every time I've lost my mind, it was because I was laboring under an absurd and ultimately sinful pressure to do it all and to appear perfect doing it. I really wanted to have it all, marriage and kids and work and make it all work to get it all done. And I was worshiping and sacrificing to the God of good appearances and not to Jesus. And it was killing me. You may have seen this story. As amusement parks reopened in Japan this summer, officials asked park goers to contain the spread of coronavirus by not screaming on the rides. They asked park goers to quote, please scream in your heart. And as a pandemic parent, this resonated with me. So if you have little kids at home, if you are a pandemic parent, I see you, I am you. I know the pressure to keep the marriage and the kids and the job right now. And I wanna let you know, it is okay to not be okay. I know that Jesus will bring you and I through this. Tuck that away. And while it seems that the pressure to appear perfect in our world is here like never before in human history, it is really just the same pressure to which Ananias and Sapphira succumbed in the fourth strangest passage in all of the Bible. And the truth right underneath the surface of this passage in Acts is this, Jesus loves you. He doesn't want your perfect performance. You don't always have to have it together. What Jesus wants is your heart. Ultimately, the issue with Ananias and Sapphira is a condition of their heart. And so Peter asks, how is it that you have conceived of this deed in your heart? The Bible has a lot to say about the human heart. On display in this passage is the pervasive belief in the Bible that what you do is based on what is in your heart. And so Jesus said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. 
For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The perspective of the Bible is that your heart is the center of your being from which every word and deed ultimately flow. And yet what is in our heart often remains a mystery to us. Psalm 64, six says, those who do evil say, who can search out our crimes? We have thought out a cunningly conceived plot for the human heart is mysterious and hard to understand. As I said earlier, my son Frankie loves baseball. And if you didn't get enough of that helmet picture the first time, here it is again. Ultimately, we got him a bunch of wiffle balls so he'd have something to throw besides the TV remote. And he loves those wiffle balls. We throw them all around the house and all around the yard. And last week we were getting ready for dinner and I went into the backyard to get him. And he had all his wiffle balls there in a pile. And he was throwing them one by one over the eight foot privacy fence into the neighbor's yard. And I came out and I asked him what he was doing. And he said, and I quote, I don't know. And I thought that was so insightful. So often we do or say something and have no real insight into why we remain a mystery to ourselves. Our true desires are often hidden from us. Or maybe the truth is, we simply don't want to take a look. There's a phrase in 12-step programs, taking a fearless moral inventory, and it's a pretty insightful phrase. It suggests that taking an accurate inventory of our behavior and motivations might be something we are afraid to do. If we remain mysterious to ourselves, it's because we like it that way. But the warning of Ananias and Sapphira is this, an unexamined heart is a fatal condition. Either because we can't or because we won't, we're generally unaware of our heart's true desire. But for followers of Jesus, transformation always begins when we get really honest about ourselves. And so the Bible teaches us to pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. It would be overwhelming though, if all the Bible had for us was an instruction to be honest about ourselves. This is where the mystery of God's goodness and power and love for you comes in. After that conversation in Isaiah, when the nation of Israel was punished and sent into exile, God made this promise to them. One day, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a soft heart. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This promise of a new heart that God made way back then is coming true through the work of Jesus's Holy Spirit. That's the story of the book of Acts. And so if you look into your heart and you find jealousy or bitterness or competition or hurt or anxiety or contempt or exhaustion, God can change all of that. You are not stuck with what is in your heart. Right here, right now, Jesus can begin to plant good things into your heart. The good news of the book of Acts is that your heart, the center of your person from which all you do and say comes, that can be made totally new. And the warning of Ananias and Sapphira is that if you leave your heart unexamined, you will not be living the life that God has for you. And it really might cost you. So this week, I wanna ask you to do something really brave. 
Ask God to search your heart, to show you your true desires. Take time to sit down and catalog what you're feeling. And then whatever you find there, ask God to transform it. So now we're gonna practice together what Matt just talked about and examine our hearts. And we're gonna use something called the prayer of examine, which has been around for over 500 years and was introduced by someone named St. Ignatius. And today I'm going to be reading um, from a book called Reimagining the Ignatian Examine. And there's an app to go with it. And there's multiple different ways to pray through the prayer of examine. And we would encourage you to maybe do this at night as you're going to sleep and just to review your day and ask God what to reveal to you what is in your heart. So we're gonna practice this together now. So wherever you are, maybe you're doing dishes, maybe you're in your living room with your family, maybe you're listening to this in your car. Try to get into a comfortable position. Let your muscles relax. Let your mind quiet down. Maybe take a deep breath. And just ask God to make his presence known to you right now here in this moment. And now today, let's ask God together to reveal all the gifts and the graces that he has given to you today. All the way from the big ones like family and health and safety to the small ones. Maybe you got a good night's sleep. Maybe you received a phone call from an old friend today. So go through your day and just thank God for each of these gifts. And now I ask God to fill me with his merciful love. I ask him to be the leader of this prayer time rather than brooding or obsessing over myself or over the day. So God, be present with us as we review our day. Would you lead us as we come to you and ask you to search our hearts? And now going hour by hour, I'll review my day. In my imagination, I relive each significant moment of today. I linger in some of the important ones and pass quickly over some that were less significant. What were the interactions that I had? What were the thoughts that came into my mind? I continue to thank God for the gifts that I found in my day. And now I pause at any of the difficult moments. I pay attention to any missed opportunities when I acted in a certain way that I didn't have to. When I find moments that I acted in a way that I was not being the person that I was called to be, I ask for God's forgiveness. And I try to sense his mercy washing over me. Now I ask God, show me concretely how you want me to respond and what you want me to do tomorrow. I ask God to show me what kind of person you are calling me to be tomorrow. And I resolve to be this kind of person with God's help. And let me just take a moment to ask God for forgiveness, to thank him that he is faithful, that we can approach his throne of grace with confidence and know that we will find mercy and receive help in our time of need. God, thank you to your goodness. Thank you for your goodness to us. God, we ask that we would integrate this practice into our everyday life, that we would examine our hearts, God, that you would reveal to us what is there so you can take our hearts and make them new. God, we love you. 
We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.